Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I want to say good evening, everyone out there. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots show. We heard Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And also, if you're not listening live, you can listen later on on KUHS Radio and Television in Denver with my buddy Henry Archuleta, the creator of that great, great radio station and television station that I'm happy to be a part of. And we're heard, the Root and Root Show is heard on Saturdays, <clears throat> excuse me, and then Wednesdays. So you can hear it then, and then you can listen to it anytime you want on social media, anywhere, you know, especially iTunes, because they put us on iTunes. That's so great. And I see that my guest is already on here. And But what I'm going to do, because I want to really get everyone kind of warmed up before I bring my guest on, so I'm going to play, because she's a minister too, I'm going to play from Beulah Baptist Church, Good Time, because we try to have a good time on here. We get into serious subjects as we're getting into tonight, but we also have a good time and just make you think. So let's start this off with Beulah Baptist Church out of Maryland and good time on the Root and Root Show.
Yes, indeed, a little go-go gospel music from Maryland. That was Beulah Baptist Church, and I played, and that was Have Yourself a Good Time. And, you know, I won't say the conversation. I, I say any conversation with my, my next guest is always a good time, even we t- even though we talk about serious subjects. It's just a good time talking to her. And I just want to introduce my audience to, if I can say, just the the brilliant, the wonderful just the, the um, little bit of everything, great educator who everyone should know about. If they don't, they will eventually. I'm talking about Dr. Stephanie Rose, who is also is also who is the associate professor of women's and ethnic studies at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. And it's so funny because when she started on this show, God, last year, you were the assistant professor. And I think eventually, probably next time this year, you'll probably be in charge of the whole university, the way you're going. So I'm just happy to have you back on here again, Stephanie. How are you doing? Hi. I am well. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm fine. I'm just just happy that you've written this new e-book. And I should tell my audience, if you want to call in, you can call in 424-675-8315. And Dr. Rose, Steph, I call her Stephanie because I know Stephanie, but she's Absolutely. written a new she's written a new ebook called "Recovering from Racism: A Guidebook for Beginning Conversations." And you know, it sounds you know I know a lot of people are like saying, "Oh no, oh I don't really <laughs> want to talk about race. I don't want to do that." And by the way, I want to plug your other book because that book. Uh, if you're going to get the e-book, you should get this one, too. This is our first book, Abolishing White Masculinity from Mark Twain to Hip-Hop, Crisis and Whiteness. Yes. And that, what was that, came out, what, three years ago? It Actually, it came out last year, and this year yeah. it, it came out in soft cover. So it's that's been out a year oh, now. That's great. Oh, my goodness, that is great. And the thing is, I remember when we first started talking when I first talked to you about this book, everything that you say in the book and the conversation we had a year ago, you were kind of prophesizing some things that have happened. Yes. Since, you know, and it's, been, you know, this is, it's, just, it's just amazing. So I just want to ask you, first of all, and this, is, you know, this e-book is really it's short and to the point, and it's for folks who won't sit and, you know, they don't want to read your, the other book. They should read this because this hits all the points here. But just tell my audience, why did you decide to write this, you know, e-book? Okay, so there are, as, as a critical race scholar and activist, there are so many times that I am in a room with people that want to have the conversation around race because they see it is present, it's the elephant that nobody is talking about in the room, but they don't know how to to initiate it. And so when the conversation begins, it can be awkward, it can be resentful, it can be so many different things charged with emotion because people are not yet comfortable talking about what race and racism right. is and its impact on our lives. So I decided but to tell write the book. Yeah. And tell the story, if you say, in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Go yeah, ahead, because I want you to tell that to story about tell. when you first came to Colorado, because that, that's funny. Absolutely. <laughs> to kind 
kind of get get past some of the tension and the awkwardness so that we can have this conversation and it can be a transformative conversation. So, yes, there's a, a story that I tell in the book where when I first moved out to Colorado Springs, if you are not familiar with Colorado as a state, it's, people, it's um, population, particularly those who are African American, is extremely low. And coming from a place like South Carolina and before that, Chicago, which is my hometown, and living in Atlanta, it's it's a very different place to be in. So the I, w- I was going out to to lunch with a young guy that was had been raised in Colorado Springs, and he had a lot of connects in terms of community building and things like that. And so he was excited to hear that I was coming and tenure track professor at the university. So just wanting to be able to build and create networks. So we're out at lunch and he's asking, so what exactly do you do? I know that you are in this program, but what do you teach and what is, what is your area of research? And I began to explain to him that I am a critical whiteness consultant. And he was like, Like, could you keep your voice down? Like, um, you said that, like, rather loudly. And for me, the tone of my conversation had not changed from anything else that we were discussing prior to that. But for him, being in public space, knowing that there were other people around us and me articulating my interest in whiteness and that I focused on white masculinity in particular was just so threatening to him that it made it made the conversation awkward. And so for me, I'm looking like, again, because I talk about it all the time and I'm thinking about race very, you know, quite often because that is my work, it's like trying to tell somebody that, you know, you got a new haircut. <laughs> Right. And um, do they yeah. like what you know? Do they like the style? And so it's so natural right. for me, and I realized how unnatural it was, even for people of color here in Colorado Springs. So if it's unnatural and not comfortable for people of color, then it's extremely not comfortable for white residents. So that that's and I can, be a, I can bear witness to that. Yeah, and I you know right. living out there for twenty years and. Go, you know, just I was having those conversations, it seemed like, weekly. And there is a belief, I, you know, out in Colorado, and there are folks who are listening to this, uh, who are listening to this on a delayed basis on KUHS in Denver, Colorado, and they can vouch for everything you're saying and what I'm about to say, but there's a, you know, there's a safety issue out there, and that's everyone gets along. They never had a civil rights movement as far as protests or anything. They've had protests, but not a major one in the 60s or 70s. And because of that, there's an appearance that everyone really gets along surface-wise. But in actuality, that's not the case. And it's, you know, Especially and that, it in grown Colorado to... Springs, oh, where yeah. it's, such, it's such a military town, and there's this illusion of force inclusion inclusion and diversity because 
of the erasure of identity that the mil- military culture invests in. So it, it's very hard for um, for people of that community to recognize difference because for the military, you're a soldier first, and all of That's that right. other stuff is supposed to be washed away when you enlist. And for someone like myself that doesn't really have strong military connections, of course, my father served, it was Vietnam, they, you know, things like that. But I was not raised in military space, in, in, in military um, lifestyle. And so I'm looking from an outsider perspective, but not just an outsider perspective as a, a, a scholar who does this research. And I'm like, you all clearly don't see what is actually present um, in this space. Last night I was at a book discussion and someone afterwards was explaining, like, yeah, um, Colorado Springs is not really segregated because I talk about how Chicago, growing up in Chicago, is a very segregated city. And while it's not, while the segregation is not the same as Chicago, there is definitely um, segregated space here in Colorado Springs. I have lived in various parts, and, again, talking to someone else, they were asking me, why do I live on the east side of the city? And my response is, where do you see black people in this city? That's right. They, The majority of them live either east or south, and I, I know that most of them live east or south because, they are in, in based on the installation that they're affiliated with, whether that's the Fort Carson or Peterson Air Force Base or what have you. But that that's primarily the reason why African Americans are in this city, because they have come via the military. They're not natural born, raised residents of um the springs. And so that's where most military families live. And even though there there are pockets of liberalism and progressivism and 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 most white um, Colorado Springs residents think that there are specific space for that, and so it it felt awkward to them that I live on the east side. And for me, I'm like I need to be where my folks are. Where well, your folks are, I know. And 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 it doesn't take me a half an hour if something were to go down. I got somebody around the corner that I could call on and reach out to. So it matters to me. And I have lived downtown. I have lived in the old North End. I have lived, um, you know, on the west side of town. And I was very alienated and isolated. Yeah, that west side in particular, that's, um, you're dealing with a lot of folks from Focus on the Family and some of the other very conservative organizations in that area. Yeah, that's... uh, (laughs) And for listeners who don't know, you know, as far as Colorado Springs, it is um, Stephanie's being very kind about that area because it's 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 even more conservative than what she's saying. And we could do a whole show just about the Springs and uh, you know, and other parts of Colorado, but the Springs in particular. But what you know, as you were writing, you know, you were inspired by you know the conversations. But was also your inspiration by, you know, what's been going on? You know, would you have liked to, like, tack this on to your first book, like saying, you know, this needs a, this appendix, this needs this because of what's going on now? 
Absolutely. It's almost like, okay, so here is an abolishing white masculinity. Here's all of the academic theory and um, analysis and all of that. The second part, this recovering from racism, this is the workbook. This is how we practically put strategies together. And as it continues to unfold, because it is unfolding as the conversation develops, as I engage more and more with different communities that are outside of academia, that, yes, when we look at what happened in Charleston this summer, and, and this summer was a really intense summer, not to say that, you know, America's racism has been so much better in however many years, but just it just felt blatantly so much just happened this summer, from Charleston to Sandra Bland to um, Rachel Dolezal and then the attack on Sean King. It's a lot that is going on and not being every able day, to have just about. a handle. Just about every day something new being put in news cycles and posted and, and viral through social media and things like that. And people wanting to have a space like what are we going to do and having practical steps in terms of doing something because emotions are intense. Donald Trump can't be quiet enough. I was like, about to say someone, that. Please yeah. take away the the megaphone because it's just driving home issues about race and racism in this country that we don't have a handle on yet. And it's yes, just, you know, it's it can only get worse if we don't begin to try to get in front of this some kind of way. And, of course, I know, as I say, get in front of it, we're like 400 years too late. <laughs> um, but still, try to get a handle on being better in community and in relationship with each other. Because what, yesterday with Virginia, what are we going right. to experience next? You know, and that's, you know, and some people are using what happened here in Virginia as a kind of a justification to say, see, see, you see how, you know, you see how your black men are? And I've seen that post, and, you know, things posted on social media about that. Which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous because, you know, at, at this point we're so vitriolic with one another that we we can say that about anybody. You know, right. if if we're all walking around perceiving and and just developing like this intense emotion that we have not been able to release, we're and anybody anybody that explodes, we can then make that argument. But the racism that comes in is that we don't want to do that equitably. We don't want to, you know, it's it's characterized and. And, you know, demonize when, again, that's how structural institutional racism works, right? This one guy who happens to be black is characteristic of all black men as opposed to the Aurora Theater shooter who's just a mental illness patient or the um, South Carolina shooter who's just, you know, again, another mental illness patient. Or, or in, a, in Columbine. I mean, that was basically, I was out there when that happened. You know, they had... Right. They had mental. They had both of them had mental illness, and the thing you know, the thing and listeners, you can call us again at four two four six seven five eight three one five. 
I'm talking to Dr. Stephanie Rose, and she's written a new e-book called Recovering from Racism, a guidebook for beginning conversations. And I know, and I don't want, and I always say this on my show, Stephanie, but I don't want folks, as they've done a number of times when you've been on, talk to me after the fact about you and say, oh, God, I wanted to ask her this. This is your opportunity to do it. If you're listening live, to give us a call here, 424-675-8315. Now, you know, you being a historian, and, I, and, and you know this, that a lot of the laws set up in this country, and this gets back to what happened here in Virginia with the and murder of the two, you know, the two folks that were killed on, on camera, is right. that the laws have always been set up in this country dating to 1619 when, you know, they brought us, you know, brought some of us here to prevent black men in particular from rebellion, right. from doing anything. It's always been right. like that. Even prior to actual slave revolts, there have been laws and they continue to be to the point that, you know, if you if you and I were talking on a corner in the springs, and it was at night in particular, more than likely someone, if we're in a neighborhood that's not our neighborhood, more than likely someone is going to report us for being out there. Right. I, you look at the Virginia slave codes or, well, any of the colonial slave codes, it was illegal for more than three um, African-American slaves to to occupy the same space, to organize and to commune together at, at different points that they couldn't be in conversation. And so we see remnants of that where, you know, um, that groups of black youth are articulated as gangs and told to disperse if they are in groups of four, right? That's the, you know, that's the remnants of those kind of laws that were put in place during colonial periods. And and, um, and we don't even have to, take, they don't have to talk they about you. They haven't youth. left our justice yeah. system. No. You look at what happened in Napa Valley over the weekend. Well, <laughs> oh, professional, middle-aged, senior African-American women just laughing and enjoy, enjoying themselves. Yep. Kicked off of a train. Yeah. Because they were too this, loud. Because one passenger... One white woman decided that she thought they were too loud and she wanted them off the train. Right. You know, again, that this whole policing of black bodies is so culturally ingrained in our society. We we look at Marlon Riggs' ethnic notions. Those ethnic notions haven't changed too much since he, no. you know, wrote the film and produced the film decades ago. And Based on historical data, we have these same figures that have been around again since since the you know colonizing of the United States and what we this savagery imagery about black bodies. Whereas when it's a slew of drunken bridesmaids who are white that you know are acting up, it's dismissed in the public consciousness as, you know, okay, oh, they're just having their last yeah. hurrah, you know. Right. Um, that's what happens when you do a bachelorette, as opposed to these women who, if, again, if you have more than two women laughing at the same time, it's going to be higher than normal decibel, you know. <laughs> so 
the volume is going to be, but but just to be exuberant and happy in sisterhood for black women is policeable by the dominant culture. And I hope, you know, and I know there are folks out there that are probably like cringing and saying, I don't really want to hear all this. I try to avoid it, but you can't live in this society or this world and not avoid the issue of race, as many people have done. And that's why Stephanie S. created this e-book, and as well as the other book that she wrote, and why she is an expert on, this, you know, I'm going to say the study of white folks, the study about, in particular, white male supremacy and what, you know, the whole, as you said in your first book, the crisis of whiteness and mm-hmm. how it must be changed. Now, tell, I don't want to give the whole book away because it's not, you know, this is not a long book, but talk to my listeners about the first thing you mentioned is just describe what you mean by race because you give a definition and get into that. So even understanding that race is socially constructed, created by human beings, most people, and when I first came into studying race and racism, most people on average before white privilege became a conversation that we were talking about, think that race is determined by genes, by genetics, that if I have a black parent, then that makes me black. There's something in the bloodstream that articulates and makes bodies black. And that that's for centuries what scientists thought around the globe when inventing and thinking and engaging with different cultures. The reality is there is nothing coded on the DNA of human beings and the genetics of human beings that articulates what race is. So it's purely a social construct that allows people either access, more access or less access to resources, power, and things of that nature invented in the, you know, in the advent of the age of enlightenment and exploration and stuff like that because you had Europeans from several countries wanting to colonize and dominate the globe. So the invention of race served that purpose to be able to articulate that these bodies over here, these these beings that we are dominating, it's our duty to do so because, A, they're, they're less human than we are, and, B, it, God has God has given us dominion over the earth and over all beasts of the earth. And so if you think about other human beings as animals, then it makes it, it justifies your behavior. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's the whole, that is what's going on for centuries, you know, in this country, you know, in this country in particular. You know, and I know you, are you familiar with the book by um, the late Theodore W. Allen? The Invention of the White Race? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because that gets into the whole, because there actually wasn't a white race up until 1676. There actually right. wasn't a that, name. There there was no such thing. There was no such thing, no category, because there was no need for such a category. And right. we see the invention of whiteness, in relationship to the development of capitalism and global expansion. And so whiteness becomes a category that is necessary in order to get 
those who are not, um, you know, so moving out of a gentry aristocracy way of um, and feudalism way of running economies and nation states and things of that nature and moving into a marketplace economy, the need for whiteness comes because you have poor whites or poor Europeans that have to buy into this idea of being different than and better and better in comparison to those who are marked as black and enslaved. So even though the conditions that you're living in might be exactly the same, that you don't have even ownership of your labor to a large extent, what is the benefit that you can claim whiteness? And so by being able to claim whiteness, then you are somehow better than this entire category of being. Right, and that came out of... um... What was it Bacon's uh, Rebellion, where, the, where actually the yeah. indentured servants who were black and white were getting together against yeah, the elite absolutely. in Virginia? Absolutely. absolutely. And listen, and you, should, you should check issue. out Bacon's Rebellion. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it became an issue. So going back to these slave codes, these slave laws, that you can only own a gun if you are white so that so whiteness gains value. Right, being white gives you access to to own property. Being white gives you access to congregate with more than three people at a time. Being white gives you access to travel without particular kinds of paper. It became a commodity. Whiteness itself became a commodity to trade in that you could own property right. if you were white. You could, you know, or if we piggyback to the 21st century, you could vote. Right, absolutely. You don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. Out at night without an explanation. Right, and I know some folks are listening and saying, "Well, you know, you can go out. You know, this is the 21st century. You can go out whenever you want." Not really. Yes or no? Did we see what just happened in Ohio? The young man who was driving and for two miles was followed by a police officer and given a ticket. And in the explanation, the police officer said, you made eye contact with me. That's why I followed you. In, in what See, world is that a rational reason for you to follow and harass someone? It, it makes no sense, but I can, I can vouch from personal experience where I almost had that happen to me in Utah going to Vegas. I had a cop who I, he, was, he had stopped someone on the road. I was driving past. He was writing a ticket, but then he stopped and just looked at me. And through my rearview mirror, I could see him looking at me until I went over the ridge and got out of his mm. view. And he was still, just still until I went over that, when I went over the ridge and he couldn't see me anymore. Mm-hmm. He was in the process of, of forgetting about the ticket of the person he was writing it to, and he was going to go after me. And I've had, you know, so I know when I see these incidents, it's just, I have flashbacks of things that have happened to me in the past. And I know there are yep. a lot of folks that are listening who have had the same things happen to them. And you can call in here again at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. Now, I know, Stephanie, you had, what, what have people said when you first said that you wanted to write this e-book? Did you get, like, people saying, oh, that's great, you're doing this, or it's like, why? Well, I I actually did not share it 
with anyone until I was right at the editing process. And then I began to ask for collegial feedback from my um, family and colleagues and to get their interpretation. And my peers were like, oh, my God, yes, this is so what is needed. It's needed if you are a facilitator who does workshops, you can definitely use this. It can be used in the classroom. It can be used as case study for, um, again, those who are trying to lead this conversation and have it in meaningful ways. So they were really, really excited for, for, you know, for the book and it coming out because it is such an accessible book. You know, a lot of times we talk about race, and it's from this lofty theoretical space. And so right. academics, you know, they're you know they're in their lingo, they're in their their sweet spot, but it doesn't translate well for someone who. And it, it's not about intelligence or anything. It's just not their it's not their area of expertise. So it's the academia world is a different world. To the average it world, is, it's, but it's, world. It's, like, it's like being at dinner with a bunch of medical physicians, right? Right. They, their conversation and their sweet spot is going to be around the, you know, medicine and the body, and the language that they have for that is different. It's not that you're unintelligent and you don't know if you have a cold or not, but the way that they talk about it is going to be completely different. And that's, and that's why I like having you on the show, Stephanie, because you – both of your book, your e-book and last book, you break things down in a simple manner. You just simply, Thank you know, you. you just break it down so any can, anyone can read it. It's not like you know, it's like pulling out a dictionary, going, you know, googling some words or just trying to figure out the phrases. It's very simple and to the point. So I'm just and glad that you, you're intent. doing this. Yeah, yes, that is it's my really, intent. I I want people in the beauty shops to be able to talk about the work that I do. Right, because, uh, you know, in the beauty shops, in the churches, in the synagogues, you know, in the schools, what keeps coming up since uh, since 2008 when uh, Obama became president was we're in a post-racial world. And just talk about <laughs> how you describe that. Describe, you know, you, you, you describe that in your book. Right. So this this idea that we are in a post-racial world it it gives the illusion that race no longer matters, that we're in a space, you know, because we not only elected Obama once, we elected him twice to the presidency, and I'm sure some of the listeners are out there saying, I didn't elect him. But, again, oh, as yeah. a nation, he, <laughs> he, he became president and, and served two terms. And so there are a lot who make the argument, does race matter anymore if you can have an African-American president of the United States? And having to to ask that question lets us know that race still matters. The fact that we point out that he is black, and I say black as opposed to African-American, because there, again, difference between race and ethnicity and all of these That's different right. things, and and even mixed race, right? Knowing that his mother is white, and how that impacts his his understanding of himself. 
so the fact that we have to keep pointing to that lets us know it's an exception and not the rule. We don't say, oh, he's the first male, you know, and we don't point out right. all the maleness of our president because that is the rule. All of our presidents have been male. <laughs> so that's the norm, and we don't, we don't mark it as different because it's not different. So when we mark his, his racial space, then we know it's not that we aren't post-racial, that we haven't gotten past race. Because to get past race would be to get past racism, and to to get past racism, we'd have to do a ton of institutional structures. We'd have to reprogram ourselves ideologically and culturally. I'm not saying that it is impossible, but it is a very long way off. A real, you know, a long, long way off. You know, it's, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, as I was reading, the e-book, you know, I got to the part about Obama. I was thinking about the first time he won, and I was on another radio station in Denver, KUVO, and this, the Sunday after he won, after the election, I remember a white woman called me, and she just raved to me about, oh, race, honestly, all racism is over. Oh, <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever to happen. And, Stephanie, I had to, in a nice way, break it down to her about what was really going on. And that, you know, right. that racism has ended, poverty hadn't ended in many sectors of Denver. You know, all this hadn't ended because he was, you know, he was elected, you know, a couple of days Absolutely. ago. And I think she started crying. I think she did cry. I didn't mean to make her cry, but she was really uh-huh. hurt. But there are a lot of people that believe like her. They believe that yes. everything was over, and it's still out there. I mean, you still hear people saying, well, aren't you, know, well, you got these folks protesting there, and aren't you guys happy you got a black president? What do you want? It still goes on. We want to have equitable lives in this country. We want to have housing that is universally sustainable. We want to have access to the same kinds of jobs and health care and education. That's what we want. We don't need just a figurehead to say that here, um, here's an image of someone. Now you don't have to talk about race anymore. Like, that's ludicrous. Right, because I remember growing up in the late 60s and 70s where they used to have the same type of conversations, but they would say, look, you got you got a black newscaster on the air now. What more do you want? You got a black mailman coming in the neighborhood, got black police for you know, all of this. Right. It's the same conversation. You got a black mayor, what do you want now? So it just it just continues and continues on and on. And, you know, books that you've written, this book in particular, you know, the latest one, I mean, it should help to wake some folks up. But you're not looking at this as like, I don't want people to think that this is the magic potion. It's Stephanie's book, no. written the magic potion. It's just an opening. It's the, the door absolutely. cracks a Yes, absolutely. It is, it's a way to extend the olive branch, to open the door, open the gateway. This week I, had, I was, you know, class was started back this week, and I was checking my email, and it was late Monday night, which means I should not have been checking it because you shouldn't be on email after 9 o'clock. 
especially right. you know <laughs> as they as they say that it impacts your sleep and stuff like that. That's right. So I was checking my email late, and I get this message, and the title of the message is Disgust. And I don't know why. Well, I know why I clicked on it, because, you know, you title anything Disgust. It's intriguing, but it's also it also rubs the person the wrong way from the beginning, just like initial, hey, how you doing, part of the conversation. Right. And I'm reading this email, and it is, utterly ridiculous and it's an angry white guy who wants to try to go in on me in terms of the work that I do but also is trying to have a conversation he's like yeah I would like for you to email me back or you know message me or here's my phone number because I really do want to talk to you and educate you even though I don't want to help you and I'm disgusted by the work that you do that's exactly how not to have the conversation, which is why. But, I but on the other story. hand, you got to look at it this way too, Stephanie. He's read your work and he's thinking about it. He's, he's possibly he read the work because his his email he doesn't he doesn't give any like you know clarity about what he thinks is the problem about my work. So he could be just looking at sound bites like. A number of people have done. Yeah, he could have just saw the book title, but the fact is, responses. right? Yes, like people look at the title and they assume things abolishing white masculinity. I've had reporters contact me, or even just um, people who've been on my website without actually reading any of my work or taking snippets from interviews that I've done. So, which again, not actually going in depth and critically thinking about the word. So, just sound bites like we like we do on social media. You like the headline right. of of an article, you click like. And so, what I gathered from his email was that yeah, he he had done some googling about me, but he had not really spent any time with what I with what my work represents. Because the more people read Abolishing White Masculinity, the more that I get responses about how compassionate it is and how right. insightful it is. And it's not what they expected in conversations about white masculinity in this country over time. It's, it's In many ways, it's the opposite of what they thought it would be, which goes back to what? The adage, you cannot judge a book by its cover. You have to actually do the work. Now, I'm curious too, Stephanie. What if, um, you know, because I've been meaning to ask you this. I'm just curious, you know, as an academic and all. What if you were, uh, if you had written the same book, same title, the first book, and this one too, mm-hmm. and your name was Peggy McIntosh? Sure. What do you think the reaction would have been? So the reaction would probably be more about gender than it would be about race. And right. um and the issue would be, you know, these dynamics about me being a a, a white woman. And Peggy McIntosh, she she has gotten her her own level of flack when she wrote and released The Knapsack of Privilege. Right. But again, it her her attack are definitely going to be different, especially having this conversation around whiteness because she's of the group, right? She's 
of the community and has access to white privilege, so it's received in a different way. Tim, now, if Tim Wise were to write this book or Robert Jensen, it, they, they'd be all over the news circuits by now. <laughs> like, everybody right. would be um, happy because with they part, like reading said, they part this of the book. Group. Right. Exactly. So so white men can, can write a book abolishing white masculinity, um, and and it would fly off the shelves, and people would want to know what they had to say, even if their message was completely different from mine. When the journal Race Traders were, was out, people were at least more willing to have the conversation with Noel Ignatov and other um, of the, the editors but again, the my embodiment of blackness and femininity is problematic, particularly if I want to talk about recovering from racism. We we think we want to not just think in this culture we silence black women's images and voices. Hence the the runaway train issue that just happened this past week, laughing while black, because black women need to be quiet in public. If they're not quiet, then they're angry, unruly, belligerent bodies, and that's how we see them. So when a black woman writes a book abolishing white masculinity, of course it's negative without yeah. even reading it. That's the assumption. It's automa- I mean, it's automatic. It's definitely automatic. Absolutely. Now, what, you know, and that's the shame. And listen, you can't call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Stephanie Rose. Now I'm not going to uh, give away anything else in the ebook, but I want to ask you because I just thought about something. Um, do you ever, you know, being down in the Springs and being at the University of Colorado, the department you're in is Women's and Ethnic Studies. Yeah. Now I don't know, but I'm guessing at one time it may have been two separate. Entities, black studies and women's studies. It was before it was gender studies, and and they didn't have an ethnic studies program, okay. but they they had a, a focus, a concentration. And so when one of my senior colleagues arrived, she her focus and area was in ethnic studies, and she was already doing gender studies. So it was. It was definitely a deliberate move on the campus to bring women's and ethnic studies together. Because you know, I guess I'm getting to what I remember when I, you know, when I graduated from Ohio State University, and we used to have black studies, and then a lot of schools began to combine women's studies, ethnic studies, and black studies, and it diluted all the feet, in my opinion. And I've read some studies about this where it diluted the efforts being made to discuss each issue. And I just wonder what you thought about that. Yeah, and I think absolutely. it was absolutely in many in in many ways, um, there's been a dramatic shift at at universities to to focus more on ethnic studies as opposed to um affinity groups. And it does. It's it's different to get a degree, have a full fledged degree, kind of African 
American studies or black studies versus to get a degree in ethnic studies where the expanse, it's more expansive and the focus is broader. Or even a degree in Asian studies or Native American indigenous studies. It's going to be different when you have to put all of that into an umbrella of focus. But it's also a reflection of cultural desires. Most students don't come to universities these days like they did and were demanding and asking for in the 60s full-fledged degree programs in affinity space. So they're they're not wide mass of people who are coming out of high school or even non-traditional space seeing the value in programs like that because we have transformed higher education into certification money-making machines, right? People want to know what degree what degree do they get in order to get the job that they want to have the career right. exactly to have the career that will pay for their student loans, which is again it, it's already a a tense a a tense relationship between the price of higher education and then expectations after. So you, it's this value dynamic that we have transformed higher ed- education into and what kind of value can you get from your degree based on the money that you have spent in order to obtain it. So there are those issues. And in the last 25, 30 years, the other issue has become the ways in which academic programs are or are not funded and so sometimes it's the best strategic route for um, for departments to merge together to maintain that they, their stability on the campus because whereas money 30 years ago was funneled more into the academic side of universities, now inflation towards administration is ridiculous. And so the academic programs aren't getting that money because you're paying the $200,000 salary for the provost and right. all of these programs and administrators that the the vice chancellor of sweeping classrooms, you know, like just ridiculousness that doesn't, that doesn't benefit the academic pursuits as much for the universities. And so you – you find departments having to find their way to be strategic so that they can be sustainable and at least offer some space where these conversations are happening. Right. I remember um, in 1998-99, that thing was actually happening at Northern Colorado, UNC there, up in Greeley. Mm -hmm. And I had a very good friend at Greeley up there at UNC, who was teaching in the Africana Studies Department, and, he, and they began to switch it to women's studies and ethnic studies. And a lot of the professors were upset because they had to add different curriculum to their traditional Africana Studies curriculum. Mm-hmm. They had to do, or lose the department. Or, you know, they weren't going to lose their tenure, but they were going to lose their department. Right. And so... It, it's just awful, and this goes on all over. You know, it's been going on all over the country, and I hope 
that at some point, and maybe there will be a demand again by younger folks who are going to college, who are in college now, as they did in the 60s, to just demand that we have black studies here, that we have this. And I think that movement... Go ahead. I think a lot of it comes from what we're teaching in K through 12, you know, the attacks on ethnic studies being taught in high school is a result of what happens in the colleges, right? That, you know, you get governors like the governor of Arizona pushing for legislation where, where the, the impact is suggesting that ethnic studies is divisive and, that it is problematic in the school system, which, of course, we know that studies demonstrate students who are able to study their relationship to the United States in high school do far better in their studies in general. Being able to have classes that affirm who they are help them excel in other aspects of their education so a lot of it has to do with the same kind of attacks that we're seeing across the country in K through 12 programs where, you know, they're trying to rewrite American history so that we don't refer to slavery or racism in relationship to colonial America. What kind of foolishness is that? Oh, yeah. You know, um, well, something I was reading and talking about, some book I was reading talking about slavery is just like, well, you know, the Africans were, you know, they worked the fields. Like they they, they wanted to do this. Like, you know, it, it, there was no mention of slavery. It was like right. Africans came here and they worked the fields. It's like, well, why were right. they here? Right, that they, they came by choice. <laughs> yeah, everything is like choice. And, you know, and then they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. So they just stopped use, <laughs> working the fields in 1865. Yeah, so like, oh. the language of work implies that they got paid for their forced right. labor. Right. I mean, it's just really incredible. That whole revisionist, and I call it trigonology, that's going on as far as history, I mean, it really bugs me. And we could do a whole show, which we probably will do at some point, on that alone. Because yep. it's it's very scary. But, Stephanie, I just want to thank you. For being on here, let the listeners know where they can reach you and where they can get your ebook yes. on, on the internet. But tell them how they actually they can get it because they, I, I would say you get a bonus by getting the book. Yes, you become absolutely. a part of something. Absolutely, and I am actually still giving it away for free. So if you are listening, please go to my website www Dr. Dr. Stephanie S T E P H A N Y R O S E Stephanie Rose dot com and you can join the mailing list and get recovering from racism for free. Absolutely free. If you just want to get it online, it's on Lean Pub and you just look up Recovering from Racism, Stephanie Rose and you can you can pay for it online, but if you want to get it for free, www.drstephanierose.com. Join the mailing list, and I will send it to you absolutely free. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Dr. Stiletto, or find my page on Facebook. That's all you have to do. Stephanie is an active 
social media um, maven, I could say, as far as <laughs> always writing, always bringing positive energy out there. And besides, and that's why I played the uh, gospel song at the beginning, because the thing that a lot of folks don't know about you, you are a minister. I am and, a minister. I pass. And she has a separate role. Right. Yeah. Yes. You know, so that's a that's a whole different thing you may not know about Stephanie. Besides being a uh, spoken word poet, you know, she's she does a lot. She wears a lot of hats. Yeah. So I'm just happy just to have you back on here, and you know, definitely gonna have you back on again. And just Thank and by the way, so if anyone much. wants to have you speak anywhere, yeah, they go to your website, yes. Twitter, you know, because. You're missing a dynamic speaker here if you don't have her there. Yes, at your, just, at just your come event. to my website. Come to my website, www.drstephanie.com. And, yes, right. we can make that happen. I am I'm actually excited that I've been able to do a lot more speaking around the country. I'll be in Atlanta in September, I will be in oh, Detroit great. in October. So, yes, just if you are organizing a Women's Day or a retreat conference, youth conference, anything, I am I'm excited to come. And I'm just excited to see how your message has grown, and that, that's really great, Stephanie. So I'll be talking to you later on. I just want to thank you for coming on again, and I will definitely be talking to you, and you'll be back on many, many times. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh. All right. You take care, Stephanie. And, again, that was Dr. Stephanie Rose, and she's the author, besides being a professor down at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, author of a new e-book, Recovering from Racism, and also the author of Abolishing White Masculinity from Mark Twain, The Hip-Hop Crisis in Whiteness. Yeah, definitely check those out. I think you will have a um, a change, a cha- you know, a change for the better. Your thoughts on race and thoughts on whiteness, white supremacy, I think you'll have some changes. And what she's, you know, this book that she, the first book she wrote, it was so timely. And we didn't know that at the time, you know, we were talking to her, but... Very timely, so I'm just happy to know Stephanie and have her on the show. I hope you enjoy the interview I had with her. But now it's time, because everyone always asks me, it's time to do some slow jams. We're going to do that. We're going to get into some slow jams. And because I did see the movie Straight Outta Compton, and they were talking in there, and I'm not going to get into the whole movie. I'm just going to, All I will say is it really surprised me, because it's about the music industry. It's not really about... Gangster rap and all It was more about the industry And how corrupt it is And it's a very It's an excellent movie I have to say that I mean you're not going to like Some of the sex in there the, Some of the violence And some of the lyrics And some of the songs But there is a point Excellent point in there About the industry The music industry And also the issue of censorship And that's a story in itself But anyway They were mentioning um Dr. Dre's uh, old group, world-class wrecking crew in the movie. And I'm going to play a cut from them, a slow jam that they did, I think this was in 86. And this is Turn Off the Lights, and this features the the voice of Michelle Lay. So let's hear this on the Root and Root Show.
needs no introduction Cause I'm the world class doctor The master of seduction I can heal all your ills And give you extreme delight But only if you allow me To turn off the light
Cancer. Ralph. Charles. Paul. Larry. And my name is Larry. And I like a woman 
and loves everything and everybody. Because I love everybody and everything. And you know what, ladies? If you feel that this is you, then this is what I want you to do.
Instead of merely holding conversation uh, Hold me tight I want to be kissed Until I tingle I want to be kissed Starting tonight Embrace me Till our hearts beat into mingle. Wrong or right, I feel like acting my age. I'm past the stage of merely turtledoving. Desperation I want to be thrilled Starting tonight With every kind of wonderful sensation Yeah, I want to be loved Every kind of wonderful sensation Sentimental moon 
loving Oh 
And if you look 
haven't played that one in years, but I that was Flora Perim and uh, I thought I'd break it up a little bit and we were doing the slow jams. I speeded up this a little bit, but that was Flora Perim and that was Angels. And before that, we did the Fuzz out of DC and like an open door. Before that, the the one and only the superb Delphonics and I gave to you. Then Starpoint also out of DC and all night long. And then we went back to the 40s with the great Billy Epstein singing the Duke Ellington song in a sentimental mood. Before that, we went to the early 50s with Dinah Washington, along with the Quincy Jones Orchestra and I Want to Be Loved. Then we did the Soul Train Gang, That Certain Way. And before that, we did uh, start to set off with the OJs and Cry Together. Did you get all that? hope you got that. If you didn't, you can just go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can leave a message and ask, what did you play on that show this evening? And who was, who was the young lady that was on to start the show? And that was uh, the wonderful, the brilliant Dr. Stephanie Rose out of the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs talking about her book, her new e-book, Recovering from Racism, and a guidebook for beginning conversations. I hope it began conversations with you tonight, or at least you thought about it, and we'll go online and get it. But again, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go to Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C, S as in Sam, hashtag Unifix. You can go on the blogtalkradio.com site, and look for a Root and Root Show and leave your comments there. If you have an idea for a topic for the show, want to ask me about the music, you know, anything, because we're getting a lot of followers here. If you're interested in advertising, anything, just go to those various uh, social media sites. And, again, I want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado listening. On a delayed basis, if you're not listening live on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, you know, thanks to Henry Archuleta for creating that great, great station. I think it's becoming the best station in the, as he says, in the universe, and I'm really believing that, given the variety that's on there. Or you can listen to this. If you don't listen there, you can listen on iTunes. You can listen all over the, as I'm finding now, it's all over social media. On YouTube, I see a number of my guests have put some of these shows on YouTube and excerpts of things that we talked about. So that's really good if people find out about the show. But again, this is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Root Show, and we'll see you next time on here. We'll have some stimulating talk as always and some music and just you know, just to keep it enjoyable and hope you enjoy it and go in love and go in peace. And we will see you next time on the Root and Root Show. And remember just to hug someone out there, give someone a smile and just don't worry about anything. Just you know, just take it light and just be. Just know that even though there are problems in this world, we can arise above them. So go in love and go in peace. Greg Rashid, the Root and Root. Oh. <laughs>